to be able to share God's Word together. Let's, um, as we turn our attention to Galatians chapter 6, let's, let's pray together and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Our Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Father, help us um, as we have just experienced the sacrament of baptism and have been reminded of our own baptism and the fact that you've called us in com- into community. Um, help us, Lord, to, to think about this passage, uh, to think about how by the Spirit's power uh, you are transforming us individually, but you're transforming us uh, as a community as well. Help us, Lord, to know how to live together, to love each other, uh, and to see your will be done in our lives and in our community. So give us ears to hear your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in, uh, in Galatians, uh, Paul had just returned with Barnabas from his first missionary trip. And Paul was about to go up to Jerusalem for a very important meeting that he was having with the church leadership there in Jerusalem. Paul was thinking carefully about what he had just experienced. This was the first missionary journey. He had just sailed from their home church in Antioch to Cyprus, uh, preaching the gospel through the island of Cyprus and then up into what is central modern-day Turkey. And there, preaching the gospel in little towns and seeing communities of Christians spring up. And, and Paul is back at his home church, just about to go to Jerusalem, and he's thinking about those communities. He's thinking about the trouble that they're experiencing. He's thinking about how they have been called by the gospel to be new people in Christ and therefore new communities with one another. And he realizes this is no easy task. Here in Galatians chapter 6, Paul has shifted gears in his letter. Up to this point in Galatians, Paul has been teaching these congregations that he has just founded. He's teaching his readers what to believe. He's teaching them what is true. Specifically, he's teaching them what is true about their new identity in Christ. Here in Galatians 6, then, he switches gears, and Paul now addresses how should they now live together in community now that they have experienced the transforming power of the gospel in their lives. Paul shifts in this part of the letter from telling them things from the indicative to the imperative. And and this kind of move is very typical for Paul's letters. The move from the indicative to the imperative or the move from what we should believe to how now we should act. Uh, We see this happen in Romans chapter 12 and Colossians chapter 3 and here in Galatians 6. Paul is basically saying in this segment of his letter, now that we know salvation is by grace alone, How then are we going to live together as sinners saved by grace? Galatians 5 tells us the things we can expect when the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives. And in Galatians 6, we see what flows out of that reality. Paul's telling us here how we need to relate to one another as those who walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I want to think about uh, the idea of community and about how we are empowered by God's Spirit to be a community, specifically to love and serve one another. So I have two points. Uh, The first point is uh, that life in Christ 
that our life as Christians starts and continues with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's point number one. Point number two flows from that. There are implications for our community if we are walking by the Spirit. If our life as a Christian starts and continues by the power of the Spirit, that has implications for our community. Now that second point I'm going to break down into how we love each other and how we serve each other as a community. But, but let me think for just a couple minutes with you about this first point. That life in Christ, our life as Christians, starts and continues by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to think about this, we actually need to look at the passage just before the one Sandy read. In chapter 5, if you have your Bible, this is Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 16 through the end of that chapter. But once you hear me start reading it, uh, it will be very familiar to you. So let me briefly read uh, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Paul says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, uh, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousings, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be con uh, become conceited or provoking one another, envying one another. Now, now here in this passage, which might be familiar to you, something you've heard before, in, in verses 16 through 18, Paul sets up a contrast between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And he says they're in conflict with one another. Now, uh, I don't want us to stumble over Paul's turn of phrase when he talks about the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are more than just our bodily impulses. A desire for food, to sleep in, uh, desire for sex, or something like that. Uh, our fleshly desires are more than that. Uh, when Paul uses the word flesh... He's using it to describe all the ways that someone might walk away from God. Flesh is the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being, as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. And it's really important here in Galatians to know that the idea of the desires of the flesh uh, can both be really bad things we do, and, and Paul's list has some bad things. But the desires of the flesh can also be very good things. We can follow the desires of the flesh by either being very bad or being very good. And here's what I mean. Self-righteousness, being a very religious person, can be a way of following the desires of the flesh. In fact, the very people Paul is worried about, when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he's worried about a group of religious people who are trying to influence these brand new Christian communities. These people are trying to influence these communities to become more religious, to follow the laws of Judaism, because that's the only way to please God. 
And Paul is saying, wait, no, that, that's just another way of following the flesh. No, we must follow the desires of the Spirit. Now, to be, to be brief, in, in, in verses um, 19-21, Paul then outlines what those actions or desires of the flesh produce in us. And then he goes on in verses 22-25 to list the fruit of the Spirit. And you see more of the contrast that comes very clear. But I want to focus on verses 24 and 25. Paul says in verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with, with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is saying in the first phrase, if we live by the Spirit. Paul is saying here, he's basically summarizing the first part of his letter. The main part of his letter so far. He's basically saying, look, if we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we are made alive by the Spirit's power, if we are set right by the power of the Spirit, if we are made to be part of the family of God and given a new identity by the power of the Holy Spirit, this, this is who you are now. This is the indicative. This is what is true about you. And then the second phrase, if that's true of you, if you are a new person in the power of the Holy Spirit, now then, walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And In fact, the, the word there in the original language is, is much stronger than just walk. It's not a casual walk. Um, it, it's what a sergeant would say to a private. Get in line! March in step. In fact, even a better illustration is, um, so I like music, but I can't dance. Um, so in, in my family, don't judge me for this, it's not like we love disco, but the song Funky Town is a song that if you turn that song on in my household, everybody, even, even Aiden, sorry, sitting in the front row here, uh, will start dancing, right? Because we hear the music and it starts to animate us. Now, I don't know if there are specific prescribed uh, disco dance steps. I bet there are. And if we were really paying attention, we would dance the correct way. But the point I'm trying to illustrate is when Paul says we must keep in step with the Spirit, it's like a soldier marching in unison with other soldiers to the cadence of the sergeants. Or it's like the cadence of the music that produces in us action. We start living in a new way. We are animated to live in a new way. And Paul's whole point here is that the flesh can animate you in a really bad way. Don't dance to that song. <laughs> but the Spirit can produce inside of us a brand new way of living, a new way of being, and especially a new way of being together. Paul is very clear that keeping in step with the Spirit must take place in community. It's no fun to dance by yourself, okay? You dance with others, or so I'm told. <laughs> you do it with each other. Here, Paul is saying, look, we keep in step with the Spirit in community. If you look at the very front of your uh, uh, worship folder, there are a list of reflection quotes. I want to draw your attention, I think, to the first one. I hope it's there. It's by Richard Hayes. He's a commentator on the book of Galatians. He's getting at this idea that, that never were we uh, meant to live our Christian lives alone. We were meant to live our spirit-led Christian lives together in community. Uh, Richard Hayes says this, Paul insists that the church is to be a community in which believers share responsibility for one another's lives. Life in the spirit 
is not a life of lonely striving, not a life of, uh, restricted to a zone of privacy. Rather, it is characterized by the interdependence of its members. This interdependence entails not only mutual support in times of need, but also the willingness to confront one another when necessary with a word of admonition. Do you get those two ideas? There, there's a loving, mutual support aspect of community, and there's also a confrontation. There's an admonition part. I'm going to get to those two. Paul, quickly, will get to those two points. So, so that, that's the first point of the sermon. Number one, we, we are alive in Christ, and we continue to stay alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the second point, uh, that has implications for how we live in community. The second point is, walking in step with the Spirit has direct implications for how we live together in Christian community. And this is what Galatians 6, 1 through 10 is all about. First, I want to talk about how we are called to love one another in confronting and caring for one another. All right? We are called to live in the Spirit, in community, and that means loving one another. And that's going to be shown in confronting one another and in caring for one another. Look at verse 6. It's there in your bulletin. I'm reading out of a different translation called the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, so it's just a little bit different than you have printed for you. 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken or caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves uh, so that you uh, also will not be tempted. Notice what Paul says here. Paul commands the one who is spiritual to restore the person caught in sin. This is the task of confronting. Um, now, number one, uh, a side observation, uh, the person caught in sin is uh, implicitly a community member. In other words, this is a Christian. Paul is talking about people in the community, I think, at this point. And so though he's not explicit here, I think implicitly the person caught in this sin is a fellow believer. Basically, it's you or me. It's someone in the Christian community. Paul then says, this person is caught. Now, I, I, I want us to not have the wrong perception here. Uh, the word caught in this case does not mean an, aha, I got you kind of moment. That, that's not what we mean by caught. Um, um, and, 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 and we're not responsible in Christian community uh, to go looking for other sins, right? Hoping to catch them in doing something wrong. Uh, it's not our duty to be policemen. Uh, uh, probing our church members' lives for skeletons in the closet or something like that. The, the word here uh, can mean trapped um, or entangled. Uh, sin does that kind of thing. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, where Christians are called to drop their chains and remove anything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles. That's the same idea. Here, sin is an entangling thing. Uh, people get stuck in sin. It's like quicksand. The more you struggle against it, the harder you fight against it, the worse sometimes it gets. And the point is, is that people in our community, our dear friends in this very room, we sometimes will get stuck in something we shouldn't get stuck in. Sin is something that entangles us, and we at times even become enslaved to it. And that, that guy that you look down your nose at is saying to yourself, I can't believe he's doing that. Isn't it so obvious that he's like training his children the wrong way? Like, oh, I can't believe he did that. And, and instead of having that kind of attitude, we should think, well, wait a second. Instead of saying, oh, can't that guy just change his life? Can't he just get his act together? Well, no, he can't. 
Sin sometimes becomes that entangling. He needs grace. He needs freedom that only Christ can bring. Instead of judging him or looking down your nose, show him Jesus. And in fact, Paul is saying, if you're spiritual, right? If you're spiritual, if you're walking in step with the Spirit, then you're going to restore that person. And, and that's the next word I want to focus on. People who are spiritual, they are supposed to restore the brother that is fallen in a spirit of gentleness. You see that in verse 1? Here, the idea of restoration is the main command that Paul is giving. Dealing with sin in our lives or in the lives of a neighbor always should have restoration as its goal. And the word to restore here is also used elsewhere to describe mending nets. Something is torn and it needs to be mended. Um, something was intended for one purpose or design and it's not filling that purpose or design. And so restoring it means restoring it back to what it was meant to be. And that's what Christian restoration is. Dealing with sin is not about punishing the guilty. Rather, it's restoring the one who has fallen astray. This type of restoration requires courage. And I know that. In order to restore a believer, in order to reach out to the one caught in sin, we actually need to have the courage to make the judgment that he or she is in need of restoration. Are you hearing what I'm talking about? Um, it's hard to go up to a friend and tell them that they're wrong about something. It's very difficult in community group to take the courage and say, hey, I see something in your life. Are you okay? What's going on? Help me understand what's happening. That takes a lot of courage. In fact, I want to say it takes love. Again, in the front of your worship folder, there's a reflection quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this brilliant book called Life Together. And he identifies this call to be a courageous uh, Christian community. Um, I think it's the first reflection quote from Bonhoeffer. He says this. He says, nothing can be... Actually, it's the third one. Um, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than, to, uh, than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Did you catch that? He called the, you know, the moment where we don't say anything about someone's sin, uh, when, when we don't want to rock the boat, I, I think maybe that's like a cultural assumption of ours. The kindest thing we can say to somebody is don't tell them they have food in between their teeth. Just let it ride. Right? Uh, if I really like that person or, you know, wanna, I don't rock the boat. Uh, but I think Paul is challenging our cultural assumption there. And, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying it in very clear words. Did you hear that he said, that is a cruelty to fail to communicate to a brother or sister who is in, caught in sin, to, to fail to reach out to them, to admonish them. Bonhoeffer saying, that's a cruelty. And it's the greatest compassion to reach out to them uh, and admonish them. It makes me uh, think of the proverb, uh, wounds from a friend can be trusted, uh, but the enemy multiplies kisses. That's a difficult kind of community to maintain. 
It takes courage, courage that is born of love for one another. But, but notice, again, Paul here in verse 1 is saying that that restoration, that that confrontation must be done in meekness, gentleness of spirit. This word, meekness, gentleness, it's the very same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount where he says the meek will inherit the earth. Um, it's the very same word in chapter 5 that we just read. One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness. So all the more what Paul is pushing on is that the one who is walking in step with the Spirit, the one who's listening to the music and is animated by the power of the Spirit, will confront one another in gentleness for the sake of restoration. Now, I need to move on. Look at verse 2, chapter 6. Not only is there confrontation, but there's love. There's caring. Look at verse 2. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Um, in Christian community, by the power of the Spirit, not only are we confronting one another, we're challenging one another, the one who's caught in sin we restore, but we're also bearing with one another. You think of the book of Pilgrim's Progress. I know our church was studying that earlier this summer. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory. At the very beginning of the story, Christian, who's the main character, has an unbearably heavy backpack. But when he meets Jesus, his backpack is lifted away. He feels light and free. And, and the rest of his journey, he faces trials. He faces difficulties or burdens. But fundamentally, he has been changed. For those who are walking with the Spirit, Jesus has removed the burden of sin. Jesus took upon Himself all the burdens of our guilt and shame and the resulting burdens of death and condemnation. Jesus has taken that and He's changed our status. Right, The one who's walking in the Spirit, Jesus has changed that person's status from being a slave to being a son or a daughter. And here Paul says, look, if you are a son or a daughter made so by the power of Jesus Christ, then you should come up along other sons and daughters of God, and bear burdens together. Now, we're not told in this passage what those burdens are. And I think perhaps what the burden is is beside the point. Uh, there's difficulty. Uh, we, we in this congregation have faced health difficulties or family crisis, uh, a, a marriage that's dissolving, or financial difficulty, losing a job, moving away, maybe even a moral lapse, a failure, in all these ways, Paul is saying, look, in Christian community, we come together, we care for one another, we bear one another's burdens. So, so what does Christian community look like? First, it looks like loving one another. And that is fleshed out in confronting one another, restoring one who is caught in sin, and bearing one another's burdens. Now, I'm, I'm going to skip all the way to verse 6 now. And the, the second point is serving one another. Uh, let, me, let me read verses 6 uh, through the end. Let, let no one who is taught the word, uh, I'm sorry, let the one who is taught the word, verse 6, share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction or corruption or decay from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Now, look at verse 6. I'm glad Eric is here for me to say something about verse 6. Because Paul then says, look, 
let the one who is taught the word, that's us, uh, share all good things with the one who teaches. Um, basically, Paul is saying, pray, uh, pay your pastor. <laughs> uh, pay him a salary, and, and we've got that covered, Eric. Uh, we're going to pay you. Uh, but it means more than that. It means encourage, give hospitality. Uh, when, when your leader, when the teacher communicates something to you that convicts you or draws you to a deeper walk with Jesus or helps you realize that you need to live in a different way, even when it's confrontational, Go to him and say, thank you. You've encouraged me. You've reminded me of the vision of living out a Christian life. In verses 7 through 9, Paul shifts to a metaphor, a, 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 an agricultural metaphor, sowing and reaping. And this is just really the idea of investing. What are we investing in? Are we investing in temporary things or are we investing in in God's kingdom. Here in community, we are serving one another by reminding each other about the story that we're in. We're reminding each other of the kingdom of God, of what we're doing here. And our pastor, our leaders are supposed to do that. But all of us are called to sow, to invest in this kingdom venture called the church, to invest in our Christian community. That's not just pastors or leaders. That's all of us. And do you know what? It gets really hard sometimes to remember to invest in the right things. We get distracted. The desires of the flesh blind us or lead us astray. And we need constantly to be reminded what story are we a part of? What kingdom are we building? What kind of community have we been called to? This is keeping in step with the Spirit. Keeping that vision, keeping that focus is really difficult. Let, let me, th this is a concluding kind of illustration. Let me, let me try to wrap up and, and illustrate, especially this last point in, in this following illustration. So uh, a, um, a colleague of mine, I teach at Biola University, and a colleague of mine, a guy named Jack Hafer, um, was uh, one of the producers uh, on a movie called To End All Wars. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland was in this movie. It's a great movie if you've not seen it. It came out in 2001, To End All Wars. This movie tells the real-life story of a small group of allied soldiers in Burma during World War II who were ca held captive by the Japanese. In the camp, the main character, uh, a man named Ernest Gordon, he was a captain. He was Scottish. He was from the Argyle Sutherland Highlanders, and he falls deathly ill in the prison camp, and he is expected to die. In fact, he's sent to the death ward. Instead of dying, though, two very special soldiers come to his aid, a Methodist named Dusty Miller, a simple gardener from Newcastle on Tyne, and a guy named Ditty Moore, a devout Roman Catholic. Both of these men come up alongside uh, Captain Gordon, and they... Uh, they're only given certain rations for food, right? And they're almost at starving uh, kind of rations. But both of these men give their rations to Captain Gordon so that he might survive. And to the surprise of all in the camp, prison camp, Captain Gordon survives. And through this, even, uh, Gordon was an agnostic. He was not a Christian person at all. But through the kindness through the service, the sacrificial service of these two Christian men, Captain Gordon began to think about life. He was in the hellish conditions of a Japanese prison camp. There was not much hope.
that he began to see this kindness done to him. Here is an illustration of bearing one another's burdens. Dusty Miller and Diddy Moore giving up their own rations to care for their brother so that he would survive. In, a, in, another, uh, in another scene in the movie, the, these prisoners are forced to uh, construct a railroad through the jungle uh, in impossible conditions, and several prisoners die during this time. And in one scene, one of Captain Gordon's friends has a pickaxe in his hand. And full of anger and rage at the mistreatment and the brutality that his captors had shown him. This, this man takes his pickaxe and starts to run at one of the Japanese soldiers as he had his back turned. But Captain Gordon and some of his friends grab him and hold him back. He's tempted to take vengeance, but Captain Gordon and the rest of them know all he's going to do is kill himself. They hold him back from this temptation. They restore him back to community. All the while, this group of prisoners are in a context where all is not right. Their world in a Japanese prison camp is totally broken, brutalized. And there's a real temptation to lose their humanity, to forget the story they're a part of, to descend into the same kind of brutality toward one another as prisoners as the Japanese uh, camp guards are showing to them. But this group of men, as the movie goes on, shows how the gospel of Jesus Christ, as demonstrated in the simple kindness of these two Christian prisoners, begins to transform a whole group of prisoners. Even though the world they're in right now is totally broken, they have courage to hope for a new world to come. And they begin to love each other. They begin to care for one another. At the, at the end of the movie, we find out that, that uh, Captain Gordon survives the war. He's so struck with his experiences, he becomes the chaplain of Princeton University, and he's there for 30 years. Upon the ending of the war, Captain Gordon inquires about what had happened to his friend, Dusty Miller. And he finds out that just a few weeks before the end of the war, Dusty Miller was killed in the same prison camp there in Burma by his Japanese captors. He was actually crucified because his captors could not stand his gentle spirit and the fact that he would never fight back or become angry when he was abused. This becomes a powerful illustration of what our community, the church, is like. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world where we might be tempted to become brutalized, become less than human, less than spirit-following believers. But as we remind each other of what is true, Christ the Lord is risen. We have new life in Christ and in our community. Because of that truth, because of what Christ has done for us, we can bear one another's burdens. We can rescue one another when we see each other going off in the wrong direction. We have the ability to hear the music of the gospel and to sing a different song, to dance a different dance, one, one that's not... Uh, one that's not broken, one that's not taking cues from the world around us, but one where we're listening to this thing that has changed our lives and we begin to move. The rhythm begins to move us and we begin to live in Christian community. My question to you is, do you hear the music? Do you know this story we're a part of? Do you know this new world that Jesus has brought and by the power of his spirit is bringing to pass in our lives, in our community? How can we walk in step with the Spirit? How would Trinity look if we began to love one another, both 
looking out for each other and bearing each other's burdens. Serving one another by reminding ourselves, look, we're a part of this bigger thing, this kingdom of God. May we be God's people as we love and serve each other as those walking in step of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I ask in your grace, would you please restore us? Would you help us see ourselves and our community in such a way that we can see your kingdom coming to pass? Lord, I pray that um, where we have been timid to reach out to brothers and sisters and encourage them in, in their walk in Christ, Lord, help us to be courageous. Help us to love. Lord, when we have been... Um, when we've been happy to just live on our own and, and not connect with other, other believers bearing up in their burdens, Lord, help us to have courage to reach out and hold each other in the midst of difficulty, to rejoice with each other in the midst of success. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in step with your Spirit. Lord, help us to hear the sweet music of the gospel. And I pray that that would so transform us individually and corporately that your kingdom would come. Lord, do this in us for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we'll continue to worship by taking up our tithes and offerings.